Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about love and hate I've been thinking about how ludicrous it is that love gets such a bad rap Somehow hate is macho and love is weak Sure, we give lip service to the notion that nothing is more powerful than love and that is without a doubt what is actually true. But in our societal value system and the press, hate and fighting are equated with strength and virility, while love and pacifism are seen as ultimate expression of weakness. Something is messed up when any human being on the planet can tell you, when they are being honest, that to choose hate is always a simpler, less risky, less daunting choice, and that it takes far more courage, fortitude, and bravery to choose love. My guest today is Danny Goldberg, a longtime music industry executive, He's been the president of three major record companies and managed the careers of many talented and successful artists, including Kurt Cobain, Stevie Nicks, and Bonnie Raitt. He began his career as a music journalist and did PR for rock bands like Kiss and Led Zeppelin. Throughout his life, community, dedication, determination, self-awareness, and putting observant thought to paper appear to be constant themes. He is currently at the helm of Gold Village Entertainment and has just published a new book, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. Welcome, Danny, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Hi, thanks for having me. So at the start of In Search of the Last Chord, you say the era can only be understood through a collection of disparate times contradictory narratives, and yet you also say there's a near-universal recollection of a period of communal sweetness. So let's start with that. Let's start with agape and a pair of shoes. Oh, well, uh, I, I, um, I wrote the book because I was worried about, uh, I'd never been quite satisfied with histories of the 60s because they focus disproportionately on the protest aspects, which were real, but uh, we're not the only thing I remembered from it. I graduated from high school in 1967. And uh, so it, the book is mostly research and a history, a journey to the places I wasn't old enough or cool enough to be part of yet. But I, I wanted to give the reader some sense of who was telling the story, because no two people remember the 60s alike. This is certainly a subjective history and and I tell a story that to me kind of epitomized this intangible feeling that you were referring to this sense of community that 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 existed among a couple of million of us for some short length of time in my mind that peaked in 67 so I enrolled in college University of California at Berkeley and went there very very briefly I dropped out almost as soon as I got there, but I lived out there for the better part of a year. And on Thanksgiving of 67, I, uh, I wanted to fly back to New York City, where I'd been brought up to see my parents. And um, for reasons I do not remember, I had it in my head then that I should be barefoot all the time. And I was barefoot in the airport when the airline uh, person at the ticket counter informed me that uh, I couldn't be allowed on a plane without shoes. I, I tried to argue her out of this uh, proposition, which seemed very irrational and, of course, got nowhere. And I had only a little bit of time before I could um, check in and board. And my eyes just sort of scanned the airport. And uh, I saw this guy, you know, a couple hundred feet away who had longish hair and it just whose body language and affect just seemed cool and the sense of the time 
kindred spirit, <clears throat> vaguely hippie type. And I walked up to him and explained my situation to him and asked him if, if uh, he would uh, uh, lend me his shoes so I could get on the plane. And, and without a moment's hesitation, he took them off and gave them to me. And I, I don't know what's more surprising, the fact that he gave me his shoes to a perfect stranger or the fact that I was sure that he would do so. That was just the vibe of, of the time. And, and I'm pretty sure a year or two later that wouldn't have happened. By that, it, the, the, the kind of darkness and cynicism happened very, very quickly. Uh, but uh, that, that story to me always kind of was a metaphor for my objection, uh, uh, feeling about the times. And do you remember having sort of a conscious conversation in, in your head about, well, we've got a community, I can ask him for shoes, he'll give me the shoes? Or was it more just a sense of relating at that point? No, it was a sense of, it was just an assumption. That's the way the world was. Uh, no, conver- no inner deliberation required. That, I, I just, I, I, that's just kind of where, where my head was at at the moment. And I think a lot of people felt that way for, for for that moment, uh, and uh, it was uh, publicly and historically the most famous example of it was the way people seemed to feel about each other at the Woodstock Festival, which a few years later I did go to at a different time in my life when I'd already started being a, a, a journalist. But that was sort of the end of something, not the beginning uh, of that sense of uh, of, of camaraderie and, and community. It seems like if you were going to be at a university at this time in history, that that Berkeley would have been a pretty good choice. What was it that so quickly was so disillusioning that you thought this isn't where I want to be? You know, I I was not a great student in high school to begin with. I guess I had what today they would call ADD. I had a hard time doing homework and concentrating. Uh, on certain things, even though I did well enough in, on the SATs and intelligent tests that I was able to get into Berkeley. That was their sole criteria. But I kind of had a chip on my shoulder about school anyway, because of my experience in high school. And um, uh, when I, the first weekend I was there, uh, I went to a concert at Winterland, which was um, one of the, uh, the larger of the rock ballrooms that uh, Bill Graham um, ran at the time. Uh, He was the king of sort of psychedelic San Francisco rock music scene as a promoter. And uh, I saw a big brother of the holding company, Janis Joplin as the lead singer playing. I'd never heard of her before. And, you know, of course was blown away by, by it. And um, there was a woman going throughout the audience with long blonde hair and a see-through satin blouse, uh, giving out free tablets of, LSD, which, you know, later I found out they were called White Lightning and manufactured by a guy named Owsley. And uh, I was just um, felt, you know, I have much more important things to do than go to classes. It wasn't even about being disillusioned. It was about I was finally able to get out of my parents' apartment. I was in this hip world that I was aspiring to. Uh, I was uh, I was really taken with the psychedelics and not taken with academia and, uh, you know, I got in trouble within the year and had to go back to New York. And that's when I entered the workforce. But uh, I just never went back to college. And by the grace of God, the rock and roll business had a place for me without a 
without an education. So you started your career as a journalist, and it seems the aspect of sort of being an observer and then writing about it and analyzing it has stuck with you. You've got two earlier books, My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business and Dispatches from the Culture Wars, How the Left Lost Teen Spirit. Yet it seems like somehow the you didn't find the sense of community that you found in the hippie movement and then later on in the music industry, maybe in journalism. I read something where sort of was alluding to that maybe you were too nice, you didn't want to criticize people and, and um, be judgmental at the time, and that maybe you felt got in the way of your ability to be a, a pure journalist. Yeah, I wouldn't attribute it to a lack of community or to community. It had more to do with whatever my particular abilities were at the time when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Um, I, I, um, I, I had originally just gotten the job as a clerk at Billboard magazine, which was trade magazine, the music business, and I discovered there were people in the office who got free records and got in free to concerts and shows if they wrote their opinions about them. And I, I had pretty low self-esteem in various ways, but I knew I could do that. And I talked my way into doing first freelance pieces for them. And then I worked for a few magazines for the next several years. Uh, it was a time where young people who loved rock and roll could get jobs in the media because the culture that we were embracing was so different from what people even 10 years older had been into. And, and, uh, you didn't need a lot of experience or skills. You just needed kind of chutzpah and uh, some flair. But to really be a critic, you've got to have a critical sensibility. And I was always more of a fan. Um, uh, and uh, I had an experience early on where I wrote a review of the Rascals. They played a outdoor venue called the Pavilion in Queens, New York, where the World's Fair had been a few years earlier, and uh, uh, I just knew that if I was going to be a critic, I had to say something critical, so I wrote about how great the Rascals were, and they had two great lead singers, Eddie Brigatti and Felix Cavalieri, and then, you know, they had a guitar player who was okay, but was not notable, and this was a time when there were great guitar heroes like Jimi Hendrix and Johnny Winter and Eric Clapton on the scene, so I said, and, and Gene Cornish twanged his guitar, and... Um, the Monday when the magazine was published, the phone rang at Billboard. I, I still had my clerical job there. I just did the reviews as a freelance separate thing. for, uh, and, and it was Gene Cornish on the phone telling me how much I'd hurt his feelings by denigrating his guitar playing. And I felt so guilty because, uh, you know, this was, I had so idolized people who made these records and studied their names on the back of album covers. It never occurred to me that they were going to read what I wrote or care about it. Um, and then call after you. that, I... Yeah, and then so after that, I I just almost always wrote just good reviews and and puff pieces because I was an enthusiast, not a critic, and uh, I, I therefore didn't gain a huge amount of respect in the uh, journalistic community, and rightfully so. I mean, there's a website that has old rock and roll pieces on there called My Back Pages, um, and uh, you know I kind of cringe when I read some of them. But uh, what that quality of being a fan, which did not serve me well as a critic, served me really well as a publicist and a manager and, and a record company executive, because in those jobs, uh, my job was to be an advocate and enthusiast. And, you know, my calling within the music world was to uh, was to be a champion of artists that I loved and, uh, you know, uh, try to 
contribute enough to their business so that I could earn the money I was making. But I always loved writing. It wasn't that I didn't like writing. And, and I'd grown up in a house full of books. Even though I didn't do well with school, I was an avid reader. I always, in my mind, was writing a book in my head. And, uh, you know, later on in my life, uh, I started writing again, most first about politics. And then, um, and then I did the memoir about the rock business. And then this new book, I just felt the tremendous yearning to go back in time to, to the 60s, the kind of period that formed my adolescent self. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, had, I had fun researching it and, uh, and, and writing it and, and just trying to give my version of 1967 because I, I couldn't find it anywhere else. Well, and maybe being an enthusiast and a fan and searching for the light also led you to, to that movement at the time and to the hippie movement. You had said it was a time of dark forces and attempt to find the light, a better value system. And so I want to talk okay. about that, like the Lost Chord. Like, what are the elements of the Lost Chord? And, and what did agape mean to you then, and what does it mean to you now? Like, has it transmuted at all what, what the movement was about, at least in 1967? Well, um, as a teenager, uh, I processed uh, sort of dozens of things happening in the culture at the same time. And uh, those elements included the movement against the war in Vietnam, certainly. And the war was in full force, and 20-some million young men in America were subject to the military draft, including me, at a, you know, not too long in the future. Uh, there was a very convulsive time in black-white relations. Uh, Dr. King had made his I Have a Dream speech in '63. Montgomery boy, bus boycott had been a few years earlier than that. By 67, Malcolm X had emerged and then been killed. In 65, he, he left uh, a, a legacy almost equal to that of Kings in the African-American community. And militant leaders like Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers emerged in 1967. Carmichael coined the phrase black power. Uh, it was a transformative year in rock and roll. It was the year that uh, FM radio started playing albums. Prior to that, the only commercial radio that played music was Top 40, and they would only play singles. And, and the album format, which was at that time called the underground format, and it started, of course, in San Francisco, um, you know, just had this, such so much of a wider palette of music, and that created... Um, an environment where record companies started investing in and signing different kinds of artists. 1967 was the year of the first albums, the debut albums by all of these artists, The Grateful Dead, The Doors, Sly and the Family Stone, The Velvet Underground, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Janis Joplin, and Pink Floyd all made their debut in 1967. And of course, all had decades of followers to this day, you know, but that was the year they, they all started. It was also the year that psychedelics really went to the masses because they had been made illegal in October of 1966. And in California, other states quickly followed. And so dope dealers took over. And, uh, you know, as happened with the prohibition of alcohol and most other things, uh, making it illegal made it easier to get, not harder. Um, and uh, the media... Uh, became really obsessed with this new youth culture. Uh, then, as now, the mass media thrived on advertising, and advertisers wanted younger people, and the so-called baby boom generation that I was part of was the largest generation in history up to that point. Um, and um, 
it was also the year that the Beatles, who were the biggest stars in the world, certainly the biggest stars in the Western world, um, discovered uh, meditation and uh, met somebody named the Maharishi who created Transcendental Meditation and shortly thereafter met uh, Bhaktivedanta who led the so-called Hare Krishna movement. And suddenly these Eastern religions, which had previously kind of been the province of uh, small bohemian neighborhoods or theology departments at schools were, were part of the mass cultural conversation. So all of these things, uh, as well as sort of a general widespread questioning of the materialism that had typified America of the 50s and early 60s, you know, kind of that world depicted in the TV show Mad Men. Um, a questioning of all that was, you know, among a lot of us was happening. And the combination of all those things to me created a feeling of, uh, of a new, a new America, a new, a new, uh, a new idea of how human beings could organize themselves and try to have a world that was less materialistic and more based on, you know, peace and love. That seems so corny to say that today. And so, so quickly was the hippie scene corrupted by, uh, dope dealers, predators, uh, Madison Avenue, uh, commercialism and, and so forth that it became a cartoon. And I understand the people that have contempt for the cartoon, but there was a, a period of time that, where you really had this sense of, of uh, coming in part from psychedelics, in part from a spiritual inward looking, and part just a general questioning of, of the established order, which had been discredited in much of our minds because of their support for the war and their criminalization of marijuana and so, and so forth. So, you know, I just sort of felt part of this community uh, viscerally very, very quickly as a teenager. Uh, it wasn't a, a rational process. It was like we just all kind of got it around the same time. Uh, and um, it was temporary because it was not ultimately sustainable to have some separate society inside the larger society. A lot of people were psychologically damaged and bringing their anger and neuroses into it and uh, there were dark forces that wanted to repress it because it threatened the established order so one and let's focus on that just a little bit one of the aspects that i really loved about in search of the last chord was the redirection of our focus on the dropping in aspect and i think in history we look back at that time often and just think of oh the dropping out but you really bring to light all of the areas in which really the main energy was towards dropping in and that there were various countercultures and at some point, although it didn't last long, really aligning and working together, um, but in all maybe an element of rebellion against something that was happening. Well, there were things to rebel against. Again, the Vietnam War was just so omnipresent. It's hard to imagine today, as much as we talk about Donald Trump a lot of the time in the media uh, you don't have tens of millions of people who might be drafted into a military and and be risking their life today. Uh, so there and and there were millions of people, including everybody that I was friends with, that absolutely did not believe the rationale of our government that said this had something to do with national security and that if Vietnam uh, went communist, the so-called dominoes would fall and it would end up in Australia and transform the world into a communist-dominated world. It didn't seem plausible to me or 
to those who opposed the war that were a lot smarter than me at the time. And the people that opposed the war were right. Vietnam uh, did uh, go, quote unquote, communist and no dominoes fell. It had no effect on on uh, the United States security. And today, actually, it's a country a lot of Americans go to on vacation, feel very safe there. And it's not a trouble spot. So the people that said the war was not actually related to our security were right, no matter how well intentioned the proponents of the war may have uh, may have been. So, you know, that was a real issue. And the other thing was this idea of materialism. And you had, uh, you know, one of the people I write about a lot is uh, and who I dedicate one of the people I dedicated the book to is is Ram Das, who was in those days known as Richard Alpert. He was a Harvard psychiatry professor, a colleague of Tim Leary's uh, in that department, who was uh, fired for experimenting with LSD with undergraduates. And uh, you know, Ram Das recalls um, that he had accomplished everything the world wanted him to accomplish. To become a Harvard professor was the apex of of academic accomplishment. He was making good money. He had a plane that he owned. He had friends. He was popular. Everybody thought he was this great success. And yet he felt uh, something missing, some inner thing missing, that that there was something more about being a soul, about being alive. And, uh, you know, I was uh, not the most successful student in the world. I was uh, did not uh, fit into social cliques very well. I was a bad athlete. And couldn't dance at all, but but nonetheless, um, I also felt something was missing, and I think that a lot of people didn't want to define themselves solely by how much money they were making or what college they were going to go to or even what their grades were. Even if those things had a meaning and an importance to some of us, it wasn't to eliminate those things in many cases, but to 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 to, to knock them down a peg on the priority list of of what the meaning of life was. And, and, um, the idea was to really rebel therefore against the, what I think then as now was the dominant American belief system, which is materialism. Uh, so there were things to rebel against at the same time. If you're only defining yourself by rebellion, you create polarity. And I think that's part of the problem with the 60s is that we, we we didn't create a positive vision that could really be completely inclusive and some of that polarity you know continues to exist obviously in the country today and some of it can be traced to the 60s it's interesting because as you speak i'm thinking about the pol- the similarities with the feminist movement and the fact that in Oftentimes we we have hindsight, but we don't go back enough to really think about the circumstance at the time that there was such a different relationship in the 60s with the government and with the transparency of information. You talk about, um, at one point you just mentioned um, Buckminster Fuller and these cards that we're sort of saying, when are we going to get to see a picture of the the entire Earth? And that then later, they, they turns out, yes, there was a, a satellite photo and, and it was, was shown. And I think when we look back, we may not realize what the real environment was that the, the hippie movement um, emerged in and then how it transformed our existence for today, that now our relationship with the government, our relationship with information, our questioning of authority and also connection now, which is growing with spirituality, that those all were seeds that were planted within the counterculture movement. Well, um, Peter Coyote, who's one of the people I interviewed and was 
became quite a successful actor. He's an ET and does a lot of voiceovers for Bird documentaries and things like that. Says that he feels that the political battles of the 60s were mostly lost and the cultural battles mostly won. I think what he means by that is, you know, anywhere in the country you go, you see a yoga place. There's somebody interested in alternative medicine, get veggie burgers. There's a, there's a, um, uh, and certainly, uh, although feminism was just emerging in 1967, it was in full flower a few years later. And, you know, there's no question that one of the genetic flaws of the anti-war movement was it was so male dominated that it, it had a disbalance to it. And similarly, the gay rights movement comes along. So in terms of not that feminists and gays have won every battle, but a uh, far more hospitable environment today than it was 50 years ago. Similarly, the openness to uh, mindfulness, meditation, and all these kind of things. So the cultural battles were largely won. Another cultural battle that's hard to even remember it existed is, is, is free speech in the arts. But up until as late as the late 60s, people were being arrested and imprisoned for um, obscene art. And that, that was all transformed by the next decade, for better or for worse. I still think it was for better. Um, but on the political side, the forces arrayed against change were much more powerful. The military, the bankers, the hundreds of years of human behavior. Uh, and uh, it's hard to say that, that the battles against militarism uh, or uh, materialism were won. But on the other hand, um, you know, human beings have been around a long time. And it's kind of naive to think one generation or one short period of time is going to eliminate the darkness in the world. I think it's still a worth contributing light in whatever way one can and hope that you're part of a tapestry that sometime gets to a better place. Like Dr. King said uh, in his last speech, he said, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. To me, that's what kind of the whole hippie generation has to now say. We may not get there in this lifetime, but human beings as a species will get there sometime. Somehow. Um, anyway, I apologize. I kind of ramble into these raps and I sometimes forget the original question. Did I answer what you asked or did I No, no you did because I guess I hadn't even asked an actual question. I had made a comment and it just was a realization that I thought that that the, we often don't appreciate the effect of a movement because we are benefiting from its results. And so we don't notice that we are benefiting from those results because of the movement. And you had said, and this time I'll ask a question, you had said that, um, and I want to talk a little bit about the be-in and Haight-Ashbury, just to kind of get a sense of what it was like for you to be there and what was going on in your eyes. Um but you had said the notion so vividly held that an integrated matrix of hundreds of tribes could function as a nucleus of a new society. And you said that turned out not to be the case, but that um, the focus on the sort of possibility that change could happen, and that's what you were just talking about, was sort of the essence of the movement. And maybe that was really what made up the, the lost chord. So my question is, at the time, what was it like for you to be in Haight-Ashbury? And, and at well, the BN. Well, to be clear, I was not at the BN. The reason I wrote the book was to mentally go to places that I, I wasn't able to be at. I was still in high school at the time of the BN, which was January 1967. I was living in New York, and that was in San Francisco, adjacent to Haight-Ashbury and Golden H Had Gate you made Park. your sign already, don't prepare for war, resist it? Had that happened? You're, well, you're that against the protest against the air drills? 
that er- earlier in high school, in seventh grade, which was, I think, 62, uh, I was influenced by a more sophisticated friend named Joel Goodman, who I'm still friends with today, who, whose um, family had been involved in the, in the peace movement. There was a peace movement before the war in Vietnam in America that was critiquing the Cold War. And one of the things that, that they were critiquing was uh, the nuclear testing and, and overinvestment in their eyes and, and uh, in, in some way uh, normalizing the possibility of it. Uh, I write firstly about a woman named Cora Weiss, who with a group of women created Women's Strike for Peace in the early 60s to stop uh, nuclear testing in the atmosphere because the radioactivity was poisoning, uh, contaminating soil and uh, milk uh, that, that infants were getting could, 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 uh, could be uh, radioactive in small parts and be a great risk to the health of infants. And they succeeded in that. And President Kennedy signed the, the test ban treaty with the Soviet Union and uh, sent Jackie Kennedy out to give coffee to the members of the Women's Strike for Peace who were outside the White House to celebrate. And then they told me, we sh- suggested that we should protest air raid drills. At this time, a lot of schools around the country, I think most schools would have these drills. They'd have a fire drill so you'd know what to do in case of a fire. And then there were air raid drills in case the Soviet Union uh, made a nuclear attack on the United States. And many people felt that um, this was, first of all, normalizing the idea of a nuclear war, which would have catastrophic effects to civilization. And uh, secondly, that it was kind of intellectually dishonest because going into the basement of a school or hiding under a desk was not actually going to protect anybody. So six of us uh, made signs. My sign said, don't prepare for war, prevent it. And we were all suspended for a day. But then the next year, the school stopped having air aid drills. So uh, that was my first experience in activism, maybe gave me unrealistic expectations about what could be accomplished. But it it, it also gave me a sense that uh, what an individual did mattered. Um, so that was earlier in, in, in high school. By the end of high school, I'm taking LSD and listening to this new music that was very exciting to me and trying to meet girls and get them to like me and typical things that a teenager would be concerned with. But I wasn't uh, cool enough to be able to get on a plane to San Francisco and skip school and go to the BN. So, uh, but I heard about it because it got, it got publicity all over the world. And the reason it did was because, um, about 50,000 people congregated in Golden Gate Park, uh, many of them with uh, very colorful costumes, long hair, smoking pot, tens of thousands of LSD tabs were given away. Uh, the San Francisco bands of the time, the Grateful Dead uh, uh, and, and others played there. Uh, Allen Ginsberg was sort of the MC and did some Hindu chants and <clears throat> introduced various poets and kind of hip scholars, and it was the first time that uh, that many people got together in a countercultural way. It dwarfed the size of previous year before, and it just was a demonstration to the people there as well as to the rest of the world that this is a much bigger movement than anyone knew before that uh, moment. And, uh, you know, Ginsburg later said it was the peak moment of, uh, of hippie idealism, and, uh, you know, I think that's a reasonable a statement after that the publicity started to contaminate the vibe you know uh but that was sort of a peak of it so uh you know it was a narcissistic generation there's an enormous amount of contemporaneous accounts of it and there was film footage of it and uh you know i was able to piece together 
then I made it the first chapter of the book because it's if I could time travel, I would want to be a lot of places. I'd want to be with Muhammad Ali when he refused the draft. I'd want to be with Dr. King when he came out against the war. I'd want to be at the uh, anti-war protests when they pretended they were going to levitate the Pentagon. I'd want to be with the Beatles when they when they made Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Danny Goldberg about his new book. And we'll be back in just a moment and talk about maybe the, the what happened after 1967 and, and a bit of the unraveling. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, listener-supported non-commercial radio. Danny, are you good to go? We've got another probably like 25 minutes, or do you need to take a break? You got I, I like there's lots going on there. We've got sirens and dogs and activity. Um, all right. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman speaking with Danny Goldberg. And, Danny, so we've talked a little bit. You mentioned Peter Coyote, and we've talked a little bit about the LSD and the psychedelics. Uh, Peter Coyote had said, acid showed you what was there, but it did not deliver it. It was like having a helicopter take you to the top of a mountain and then bring you back without providing a guide to get you back up there. And I'm wondering if this was sort of symbolic, in hindsight maybe, of the, the entire movement. I think it's very good metaphor, uh, and I think it's very consistent with what uh, Richard Alpert stopped taking LSD and went to India. His shorthand for it was, you always came down. And then later, when he met his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, who changed his name to Baba Ram Das, uh, his guru said, he asked his guru, what experience? He said, well, it allows you to see Christ for two or three hours, but then you have to go back to your normal life and do the work uh, to, to spiritually of a lifetime. Uh, and that's very similar to what Coyote said. And I think that's true of the society writ large, that, that, that a group of us got a glimpse of the way the world could be and uh, something to aspire to. But, uh, you know, there's no, uh, not that kind of a shortcut to utopia. Um, in terms of, you know, you were suggesting before kind of what, what the, ended it. Yeah, the and, coming uh, apart. I think as soon as Haight-Ashbury became famous, it was doomed. Uh, firstly, it was a small neighborhood uh, that, that only a few thousand people lived in. And uh, after the B-in, I think 100,000 people descended on the city by the summer. They, they called it the summer of love. Uh, but, you know, I recently had a conversation with Dennis McNally, who was a longtime publicist for and colleague of the Grateful Dead. And and he said, and I agree, that the real summer of love was 1966, before there was any publicity. That was the innocent time. 67, the public summer of love, which was a media creation, uh, was really the summer of dissolution. Uh, predators came, heroin dealers came, uh, a lot of police uh, had to be there. Uh, the, the larger city didn't want people there. And most of the people who were part of the community that created Haight-Ashbury left. They went to the country because they could see that the little ecosystem they had just couldn't couldn't contain hundreds of thousands of people, nor was it any, anywhere. There's a reason, uh, you know, human beings evolved the way they did, you know, for a reason. So um, uh, commercialism in general, so they were drained of, of meaning. Okay, the coming apart. Um, well, Certainly, the first thing to, to, to come apart was, was Haight-Ashbury as a source of uh, kind of spiritual leadership, creativity, and, and uh, being a model for some new society, because the, uh, it's a small neighborhood. 
that uh, where a few thousand people lived. And after the be-in, uh, the media started proclaiming that the so-called summer of love was coming in 67. Um, if, if there was a summer of love, it was the year before, before there was media attention. Uh, by the 67, I think 100,000 young people uh, descended onto this small part of San Francisco, and it was ugly. There were dope dealers there. There were predators there. There, were, uh, there was not an infrastructure in the community to deal with the health needs or the housing needs of people. Um, uh, it became uh, a tourist uh, destination and uh, overnight drained of the spirit that had made it attractive in the first place. And, uh, and people scattered to different parts of the country, the people that had kind of created the community. Uh, secondly, the psychedelic scene, um, which started out as a really sincere spiritual, using psychedelics as a spiritual sacrament, and even Tim Lee, not a perfect human being, would talk about having a guide and set and setting. It became kind of a party, a party drug, uh, and uh, moreover, it became the province of criminals because it was illegal. Dope dealers controlled it. Uh, there were very idealistic uh, acid dealers who really thought they were bringing light to the world, but there was also the old-fashioned mafia and people that were perfectly happy to sell heroin and methadrine alongside of it and to uh, distort the chemical in, in what they were representing as, as LSD. Uh, it also had a vicious reaction from the government to the anti-war movement and to the uh, black power movement that resulted in a lot of uh, violent confrontations and spies uh, infiltrating, you know, people today uh, complain about our government, and there's certainly a lot to question about the current government, but as bad as the FBI may have been during the election or other times, nothing like what J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was like, where they really had a well-organized, methodical opposition force to all forms of questioning of the establishment, particularly the civil rights and anti-war movements. Um, and you had people that became kind of hip celebrities some of the musicians, some of the philosophers, uh, some of the political leaders who just psychologically hadn't been prepared for that overnight transformation uh, to, to being that well known. And fame is also a very powerful drug and uh, can do damage uh, inwardly. So uh, all of these things uh, conspired uh, to undermine the, uh, the subculture. And then of course, uh, the two greatest leaders that could have bridged the gap between the functioning <clears throat> society and the ideals of the protest movement were murdered, Dr. Martin Luther King and, and Robert Kennedy. So by, by uh, 68, um, it's just a different feeling. There's still a lot of the hippie elements that stay in the culture for several years, but uh, part of the, part of the, um, uh, the, the, the balance of forces grew significantly darker. Now, the people in Haight-Ashbury knew right away that their scene was over. And in October of 1967, some of the people who'd organized the BN and a few others staged a ritual they called the Death of Hippie to, to, with a coffin that they marched down through the streets of San Francisco. No human being was actually in the coffin, but what they meant was that the external symbols no longer had any meaning. The word hippie no longer had any meaning. But the inner values that created those things, I think, stayed with people and stay with them to this day. But they're not in the mass pop conversation the way they were then. That was a brief moment in time when that was possible. There was a time when the word hippie wasn't a joke, uh, but it didn't last long.
You talk in the book about the fragmentation of the left and the infighting within the, the community and the communities. But what really struck me was the contempt that was coming from all directions, not only from the right and the conservative, but also from the left and the media and Freudians, um, pretty much from all directions. What do you think was so threatening about the counterculture movement? Well, it's kind of a multi-part question, so let me try to do it in pieces. I think in terms of the uh, established order was threatened by the idea that um, money wasn't the center of success. I think that a lot of the Freudian movement uh, was about trying to make people normal in a way that they could function in a capitalist society, make money, be good citizens and so forth. Um, this, you know, the psychedelic revolutionaries almost all started as psychiatrists, <clears throat> both Leary and Alpert did, and so did Dr. Oscar Janiger, who was an early pioneer with psychedelics uh, on the West Coast. And um, they were critics of the, of the psychiatric establishment and, and trying to create a situation where the inner being was the priority, not the external, not the external um, one that, it, you know, although, of course, one has to function in a society, that doesn't mean that, that your psychology and happiness are solely defined by, you know, what your salary is. Um, I think that the political world, uh, you know, didn't like people protesting a war. This had not happened in, in memory. <clears throat> people remembered World War II when there was a broad consensus for the war and Korea, even though in retrospect, I think there are things one could question about the Korean War. There was not a widespread protest movement. And so the military and political establishments and all of the businesses that benefited from it were directly threatened by the idea of an anti-war movement. I think that there were established uh, religions that didn't like all this Eastern philosophy. Uh, they, they they felt that, uh, that they had uh, religions that were... Uh, the right ones, and that uh, that this was going to uh, undermine young people's uh, confidence in their theology. Um, uh, you know, I think you had businesses that didn't like the uh, questioning of capitalism because it interfered with some of their business plans. So it's easy to understand why the sort of status quo establishment was so opposed to this uh, critique of it. But it was not a monolithic movement or it, it was hundreds of splinter groups who criticized the establishment but who had very different criticisms some on the left believed in violence uh, some believed in nonviolence some believed in angry confrontation some believed in peace and love some believed in working within the system and trying to change the democratic party some believed in in, in rejecting the entire uh, political structure some believed that meditation and um, other forms of spiritual pursuits were, were the only thing that mattered and, and, and were not as engaged in protest or social movements. Some believed that uh, politics was all that mattered and that anything uh, inwardly pointing was taking away from quote unquote serious work. Uh, and the left in general, the political left, had a terrible history of factionalism. And one of my favorite leaders of the anti-war movement was Tom Hayden, who died around a year ago, and who was uh, he was one of the founders of SDS. He wrote the Port Huron Statement, which was one of the greatest critiques of 
materialism and capitalism in the early 60s and then became one of the one of the principal leaders of the anti-war movement later went on to be a state legislator in california and accomplish a lot of things and shortly before he gave a speech in washington around the 50th anniversary of some of the vietnam protests saying that in the 60s he and his friends were all in their early 20s they called themselves they were referred to as the new left to distinguish themselves from the left of the 30s and 40s and they were convinced that they could avoid the factionalism and the infighting that had bedeviled the left in the 30s and 40s. And he said one of his biggest regrets is that they that they replicated that infighting. And today, in 2017, when there's a lot of people that want to form some sort of resistance to uh, uh, kind of a Trump Republican juggernaut uh, to have a uh, what in our view is a more materialistic government, uh, we have the same problem, the bitterness between some of the supporters of Bernie Sanders and some of the supporters of Hillary Clinton and some of the people who were in the Occupy movement, the finger pointing, uh, is risking a coherent, unified action. So when I look back at 1967, uh, I want younger people to learn what was good about it, but also to learn what was bad about it, to not repeat some of the mistakes. Dr. King had said, darkness cannot put out darkness, only light can do that. And I, what you're talking about now, we seem to be in the midst of such infighting and cross-fighting among not only extreme identities and mindsets, but within these groups that are meant to be um, collaborative. Well, look, human beings are that way. Uh, you know, this is, not a, this is not a new problem for the human race. And I think the thing to do is to support the positive as much as possible. And there are some people doing enormously positive works. I look at Reverend Barber in North Carolina, so-called Moral Mondays, uh, you know, very much in Dr. King's tradition, dealing with uh, voter uh, repression. And I look at the job Cecile Richards is doing with Planned Parenthood, someone who stands up for principles and protecting the rights of women without uh, demonizing her opponents. I think the ACLU is doing very important work dealing with the uh, uh, attacks on immigrants uh, and always standing on principle uh, rather than um, hateful rhetoric. You know, I think there are a lot of good role models out there and the idea is to support those people. And uh, to me, there's so many of Dr. King's uh, speeches and sermons that are available online. Um, whenever I don't know what to do or get depressed, I listen to one of them. Uh, he's still this incredible, uh, bright light in the cosmos to, uh, to kind of show people how to balance, uh, you know, uh, strong, radical political ideas with love. And I believe only that combination can be successful. I see no evidence that, that, uh, uh anger and, and, uh, uh, violence actually make things better. You had said in your book, it could be worse than it has been. Millions of people feel empowered today. And who would have felt like isolated freaks before the 60s? I was going to ask you if the flower children of the 60s are the blue meanies of today. But instead, I think I want to end the show with maybe what turned out to be the lost chord. Um, You mentioned it towards the end of the book, Mel Brooks' 2,000-year-old man a flash to indicate that something different is possible. And I'm wondering if that's your takeaway, having lived through the counterculture and been a part of it and then gone back in hindsight and interviewed all the people who were there and written this book. Well, um, again, if I could break it into pieces. First of all, to me, the blue meanies are 
materialists, not aging flower children. We're, we're trying to be good. We're trying to do our best. We may be foolish or delusional sometimes, but I, I don't think that aging flower children are the blue meanies. I think the blue meanies to me represent materialism uh, uh, and polarization. Uh, the, the, um, the thing about the 2,000-year-old man that I quote and refer to was uh, the 2,000-year-old man was a comedy album that was very popular in the early 60s, uh, done by Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, still alive in their 90s, doing pretty amazing things. In those days, they were young comics, cutting edge. They were the Aziz Ansari's and Amy Schumer's of the time. And the conceit was that Mel Brooks played a guy that was 2,000 years old, and Mel Brooks was, and, and Carl Reiner was the straight man. And he asked them, what were the early religions? And he said, the first religion, the first person we worshipped, Phil. He was the strongest and the toughest of us, and anyone who disagreed with him, he beat the crap out of. And then one day, and we feared him and we worshipped him. And then one day, a bolt of lightning hit Phil and he died. And we looked at each other and we said, there's something bigger than Phil. And to me, that was always kind of a, a nice story about the idea of there's something bigger than what we see with our eyes and ears. There's something bigger than the established power. There's a mysterious force in the universe. And trying to tap into it is the goal of every religion. It's the goal of mystical people who don't affiliate with a religion. Um, I, I still think that's a good goal to have. And uh, sometimes you can tap into it and sometimes uh, you, you can't. But it's worth trying because life is better when you're tapped into it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Danny Goldberg, for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Real pleasure reading your book and a real pleasure speaking with you. Is your book available now? I know it came out just recently, the beginning of June. It is available uh, at all of the fine bookstores that sell books um, and online at uh, Amazon and Powell's and Barnes and & Noble and all the other people who, who sell books. I, I, hope, uh, I hope people read it, and I can't thank you enough for letting me talk about it. I I'm, I'm hope they do. I'm sure they will, and they'll be glad that they did. So thanks again. Okay, Danny, thank you so much. I wish Bye-bye. we had a thank better you. connection. You just never know, but, but I'll edit it down. It'll, it'll be seamless. So grateful. Okay. Thanks. Wonderful Bye-bye. speaking with you. Bye.